Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. If you haven't, please subscribe to The Down Ballot and leave us a five-star rating and review. David Muir couldn't join us this week, but we do have Joe Sudbay, guest host on Sirius XM Progress and the host of State of the States, to guest host here with me. How is it going, Joe? Well, first of all, thank you so much, David, for inviting me to co-host with you today. Very big shoes to fill, but I'm really excited to be here, and uh, it's quite an honor. Well, we're, we're glad to have you, and why don't you start filling those shoes by telling us what we're going to be covering in Weekly Hits this week. Well, there's so much to cover, but we're going to focus in on the Pennsylvania Senate race, a couple of scandals involving Dr. Oz, and then, which we thought were the big scandals of the week, but then... Here's the Georgia Senate race and Herschel Walker and his woes, which are just astounding. But also spotlight the Texas Attorney General's race, a race that really is so important for progressives around the country. We're also going to talk about the presidential election in Brazil. Great. And then at the end of the show, we'll be interviewing Nathaniel Rakich for our deep dive. He's a returning guest where we'll talk about the 538 model as well as his take on some of these scandals and what we should expect as we move to likely voter models in the polls. So stick with us. So, Joe, you've got the great responsibility of doing the first ever non-David weekly hit. What do you have for us? Well, I have been obsessed, of course, like all of us, with the Pennsylvania Senate race. And, of course, you know, John Fetterman, the Democrat, running its the open seat, a Republican health seat, being challenged by Dr. Oz. And there was a lot, there's been a lot of chatter lately that maybe Oz is catching up. And then... Earlier this week, he had not one but two pretty ugly stories break about him. One was from the Washington Post about Dr. Oz, the doctor, and talking about his show. And I'm just going to read this line because it's so astounding. During the show's run from 2009 to 2021, Oz provided a platform for potentially dangerous products and fringe viewpoints aimed at millions of viewers, according to medical experts, public health organizations, and federal health guidance. He was a huckster. And he's out there telling people, I'm going to approach the Senate the same way I approached being a doctor, which would make him fit right in with a bunch of other Republicans being a huckster down in Washington. But this is just so shocking. We've seen a lot of coverage of it over the years, but this Washington Post article really encapsulated it and just, it should be more shocking. It should have been the most shocking story of the day. And I do just want to give the Fetterman team a shout out because they do such great work with um, social media. They actually did an ad featuring Dr. Nick from The Simpsons, followed by Oz using very similar language. You have to see it if you haven't seen it yet. <laughs> so that should have been the biggest scandal of the day because, I mean, it's about his position as a doctor and the fact that he made millions doing it. But it wasn't because later in the day, we saw an article from Jezebel about his scientific experiments that killed over 300 dogs, including entire litters of puppies. 
I'm a dog person, I'm a really hardcore dog person. This one was a jaw dropper. I'd seen rumors about it, but Jezebel went in. They did the deep dive. They looked at the his history of experiments at Columbia University. And um, big shout out to Kylie Jung for, for doing that deep dive and for coming up with the the report that during the course of 75 studies he published in academic journals, his team conducted live experiments on over a thousand live animals, including dogs, pigs, calves, rabbits, and small rodents. 34 of those experiments resulted in the deaths of at least 329 dogs. So I don't think these are winning issues for Dr. Oz, and I also don't think that the race is closing the way some are trying to intimate. Yeah, it's been strange to see there's been sort of a movement of people talking about how this race is closed. And and certainly it's in the polling closed a little bit, largely from Oz coming from like absolute depths of despair to like 40 or 41 percent, while um, Fetterman is still in the mid to upper 40s. So it's, it's strange the reaction people have had. People have almost been excited to to think about this idea of a close race in the media, which I don't think is the case. I think Fetterman still has a comfortable lead. And, and I think Oz needs something more than just like scandal after scandal if he's going to genuinely make this a race where the two candidates you know, are tied or you really don't know who's going to win, short of a big polling error. Absolutely right. And uh, he's he doesn't have much to offer people of Pennsylvania besides his quackery and killing dogs. And I just don't think that's a winning platform, David. I just don't. That's me. But um, Really putting yourself out there, anti-killing <laughs> dogs. So what are you seeing? What, what, what's, what's, what are you paying attention to? So you think that would be the big scandal of the week. But of course, Herschel Walker, never one to be outdone, has had an even bigger scandal down in the Georgia Senate race. Walker's, of course, the, the GOP nominee for Senate. He'd already been in hot water since he became a candidate for a bunch of serious allegations, you know, lying about some of his past credentials, domestic abuse allegations. But now the Daily Beast has reported that he paid for a girlfriend's abortion in 2009. Now, of course, I don't think there's anything wrong with someone paying for an abortion, but that's not the view of Herschel Walker, who supports criminalizing abortion with no exceptions, or the view of most of the Republican voters who voted for him in the primary and presumably he'll need the votes of in the general election. You would think this would be pretty disqualifying if you are really strongly anti-abortion and you are like, abortion is murder, like, this seems pretty bad and something you wouldn't want to vote for a candidate for. But of course, you know, prominent conservatives are already out there making excuses as to why they still need to support him. Despite this, they can't take him off the ballot due to Georgia laws. So they're just coming to terms with the fact that basically no matter what he's done or comes out, they're going to support him anyway. And of course, this story goes further in the wake of this coming out and Walker's strong, aggressive denial. His son, Christian Walker, who's sort of a minor Internet celebrity and was a favorite of the right wing for being black, gay and conservative, has apparently had enough of his father's campaign. He sent a number of very you know, angry tweets he accused his dad of, of threatening to kill him and his mom, saying that they'd had to move to, to flee from his violence multiple times. And of course, previously he had been supportive of his father's campaign. And, and I don't want to delve into too deep. Obviously, 
we don't know exactly what's gone on between him and his father. There clearly seems to have been some sort of abuse, seems fair to say was likely in this situation, be that simply emotional or, or this genuine fear of violence. So that, you know, puts somebody in a tough situation. But he certainly used his celebrity a lot during the Walker campaign to help himself. And so it's been interesting to see this now sudden turnaround. Oh, yeah. In the uh, LGBT vernacular, we would call Christian Walker a homicon. And that's what he is. Um, Joe, my God, had a post, uh, the great blogger Joe Jarvis had a post about it the other day and called it, you know, homicon turns on his dad. And like he did it through Twitter. And then his video the day after was just so intense, just the anger he has and the abandonment. And, you know, I don't want to get inside of anyone's um, intra-family relationships, but it's the kind of thing that Republicans would make hay with A and B. What I'm so, it's still amazing to watch the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy. These, this is a party that is completely determined to control women's bodies and tell women they can't control their bodies. But when one of their buddies, you know, pays for an abortion, no problem. It's just so rancid. And the other thing it does David, is it puts the abortion issue front and center again. And, you know, every Republican who's running this year, especially in the Senate, any Republican should be asked about this because they're all benefiting from the same donors. They're all benefiting from the same money. Do you want Herschel Walker? Do you, are you cool with this? I think it makes the abortion issue front and center. And I think that's really important for Democrats. Yeah, and this race has been extremely close in the polling, probably one of the closest Senate races in the country. So we'll we'll have to see how this fully you know breaks out in the in the weeks ahead, and then obviously leading up to election day. In the spirit of of down ballot elections, I know you had a down ballot election in Texas that you wanted to highlight and talk a little bit about. Yes, of course, because one of the reasons I love the down ballot is because I am obsessed with down ballot races and looking at attorney general races. There's really some really extremists running in states like Arizona and Michigan. you got Chris Kobach running for attorney general in Kansas. This is a guy who got sent to remedial legal classes by a federal judge in 2018 and had to just quit being on the board of We Build the Wall because they got indicted. But he's not even the worst. The worst is actually an incumbent. That's Ken Paxton. This week, we learned from AP that Paxton's staff had to drop a series of human trafficking and child sexual assault cases because they lost track of the victims. They lost track of human trafficking and child sexual assault victims. So this is, of course, the week after we saw Ken Paxton running from a subpoena that he that was trying to be served on him about an abortion case. And this is the same Ken Paxton who was indicted in 2015 for felony securities fraud at the state level and has been able to push off the trial. This is the same Ken Paxton that's under investigation by the FBI for corruption based on a case brought by staffers in the Texas Attorney General's office. And this is a guy who, you know, it just keeps going with this guy. The AP also reported that the corruption investigation also involved an affair with Ken Paxton. I don't usually care what people do in their private lives, but Ken Paxton cares about my private life. So it's out front and center. Ken Paxton also appeared on January 6th at 
the speeches on the ellipse before the insurrection. This is a guy who is so corrupt. I mean, he just brings it to a whole new level. And he is one of of the top three races in Texas right now, governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general. He is the most vulnerable Republican by far. I've seen a lot of reporting, a lot of analysis from Texas that this could be a sleeper race. His challenger is uh, Rochelle Garza. She's amazing. I, I got to interview her on Sirius XM Progress. She's been a fighter for reproductive rights. She actually had the only abortion case that Brett Kavanaugh ever was involved in. It's called Garza v. Hargan when he was on the circuit court before he overturned Roe v. Wade. She represented a 17-year-old pregnant girl who was denied an abortion and she won her case and she actually has notice it's called the garza notice that teens in immigration and custody must be given to inform them of their rights and many of you might have seen her she actually testified against kavanaugh during his hearings back in 2018 she's terrific she can win and the the, the final thing i want to say is yes it's the attorney general of texas But he impacts all of us. Paxton impacts all of us. He uses the courts in Texas. He finds right-wing judges, right-wing Trump judges to block policy. He's done it on immigration. He's done it on LGBTQ equality. He's done it on abortion rights. He's done it on the environment. He does it on everything. And defeating Ken Paxton will cut off that pipeline. So this is this is one of the races I think progressives around the country should really be paying attention to. Yeah, and I think you're right that this is a real sleeper because with these down-ballot races, there's always the question of people are primarily going to come and they're going to vote whatever the top of the ticket is, either Senate or governor. In Texas, it's obviously the governor's race. And polling, at least right now, shows, shows Abbott leading Beto by about high to mid single digits, seven points, something like that. And that could change. But but let's assume that it stays somewhere in that area, five to 10 points that Abbott beats Beto by. Then you have to imagine how does Garza get there from that point, because most people are going to just vote down the ballot the same way. But you can imagine a healthy chunk of people who would generally vote Republican, who vote for Abbott, who are really turned off by all of Paxton antics, all of the controversies, everything, and are willing you know, to vote for Garza. So you can imagine the Abbott-Garza voters existing, and that's what she would need, assuming things don't change more broadly, to, to win this race when otherwise you know, Republicans are presumably going to win most of the other statewides. Right. And he, he did win in 2018. He got just over 50% of the vote. He lost by just a he beat a um, guy named Justin Nelson by about three and a half percent. And Justin was a great candidate. I got to interview him too, but he didn't have much support. Rochelle Garza is really building a lot of support across the state. She just got endorsed by the San Antonio Express News. And, you know, there are probably going to be a lot of papers that will endorse Abbott again, but they don't, no one wants to endorse a corrupt attorney general. He can't, he's not really a symbol of law and order. But um, anyway, so I, 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 and, and, and Rochelle is great too. She's just a terrific candidate. Yeah, for sure. So lastly, I did want to do a quick wrap up in the Brazil presidential election that took place earlier this week, where former President Luiz Incao Lula da Silva and current far right President Jair Bolsonaro are headed to a runoff. After Lula fell just short of 50% in the first round, he received about 48% of the vote to Bolsonaro's 43%. 
Bolsonaro, of course, is the current far-right president of Brazil. Lula is a past president of, of Brazil from the, you know, from the left wing of the country. A centrist candidate won about 4%, and a center-left candidate won about 3%. Those were the two other candidates who got more than 1%. So mostly went to these top two candidates already. You would expect that 7% to be more Lula-friendly than Bolsonaro-friendly, but obviously you don't know until that happens. Some, of course, you know, may stay home. Polls pretty accurately predicted Lula's percentage of around 48%, just short of the 50% he would need to avoid a runoff. But they undershot Bolsonaro by about six or seven points. He was polling around 36, 37% in the average, and as I said, got about 43%. The other thing was that Bolsonaro's candidates did pretty well down the ballot. Now, Brazil's legislative politics are extremely fractured. There are just a ton of parties, so it's very hard to easily summarize. But Bolsonaro allies definitely did better than was expected. And I think one of the things that you saw was that the the left and the center left, both in Brazil and others who had been covering or observing the election, were, were pretty disappointed, despite Lula getting 48 percent, nearly winning without a runoff, because the, the polls had showed a wider margin. And I think sort of similar to 2020, they wanted a repudiation of Bolsonaro and what he stands for and all of his like sort of far right antics and this really terrible stuff about rejecting the results of the election and, and destroying the Amazon rainforest and all that. They wanted what we wanted in 2020. They wanted a repudiation like we wanted to repudiate Trump. And that's not that's not what happened in 2020, really. That's not what happened here. Biden won and we did barely hold the, the House and the Senate. In Brazil, I think Lula is still the strong favorite, but the reality is, is like Trumpism is here to stay. Bolsonaro and his allies are here to stay. Hopefully Lula will win that election. And then you just have to go forward from there and, and keep fighting it. These things are, are not going to go away anytime soon across the whole world. And we're going to keep fighting these, these sort of far right groups in the long term. It's not just going to be one election. Right. And and it was it was really wild to watch because earlier in the summer, it wasn't clear that Lula was making the moves that he needed to. And, you know, I, I've been just following him from a distance. And it was really interesting on Sunday. I'm seeing the incumbent president at 43 percent losing by millions and millions and millions of votes. And 43 percent, 57 percent of this country voted against him. And granted, it wasn't Lula getting the majority and avoiding the runoff. But it seemed to me, as a complete outsider, when your incumbent president gets 43%, they're not popular. And granted, like you mentioned, down ballot, there are a lot of Bolsonaro party members who did okay. But, you know, I was trying to look at the good side <laughs> from an outsider perspective and really hoping that that, if that margin holds or anything close to it, that would be a blowout in a runoff. Yeah, and, and the runoff is October 30th, so in just under four weeks. There's a lot of, of elections taking place that week. Obviously, the midterms are November 8th. Israel is having an election that week. Denmark is having an election that week. So there'll just be a ton of things happening in about a, in about a nine-day span, and we'll, we'll be covering all of it. So coming up next, we'll be talking with Nathaniel Rakich, the senior elections analyst for 538. So stick with us.
Joining us this week for the second time is Nathaniel Rakich, a senior elections analyst for 538. Welcome back. Thanks, David. I get to call you David now, which is very exciting. I know, I know. I, I've limited the podcast to one David for this week. so <laughs> I've You finally won there. the power struggle. Congratulations. <laughs> yes, for at least one week. We'll see how it goes next week. So as we talked about a lot in our weekly hits, there's been a couple of big recent scandals among the GOP Senate candidates in Georgia and in Pennsylvania. So what's your big take on these scandals and, in, and on October scandals like these in general? How much of an effect do they have? Is there like sort of a broader thing we can take from them or is it really specific by specific? Yeah, so we at 538 have kind of done the math on scandals. So I have a big database of federal and statewide office holders who have been hit by scandals since I think it goes back to 1990. Um, and we use this to basically assess the electoral impacts of having a scandal kind of associated with you. And so um, Nate Silver, who folks might know is the editor-in-chief of 538, did an analysis back in 2018 where he looked at these candidates, took kind of like a simple model of how you would expect them to do in their election based on things like partisanship, generic ballot polling, things like that, and then looked at what they're how they actually did um, with this scandal attached to them. And he basically found that on average, those candidates did nine percentage points worse than you would normally expect them to do. So scandals certainly do have an impact. It's important to note, though, that analysis you know went back in time to the 90s. It um, looked at a time when there was less polarization um, than there is today. Now, a lot of folks, I think, would be willing to put party aside or sorry, to put the scandal aside because, you know, you got to vote for, for your party line because control of the Senate or the House is too important. So I do think that, you know, it's not like we should expect Herschel Walker and, and Mehmet Oz to uh, go down nine points in the polls right now. Um, but I do think some kind of impact is probably to be understood, uh, particularly, I think, for Herschel Walker. This abortion controversy really seems to be eating up the headlines down in Georgia. In Pennsylvania, for Oz, the you know it seems like local and traditional media aren't picking up on the story as much. It's really just been kind of Jezebel and online outlets. So I think how much it's covered is really going to make a big uh, difference there. But generally, I think that, you know, there can be an attitude, especially in the era of Donald Trump, um, when he had about a bazillion scandals associated with him. And, you know, he obviously still won the presidency in 2016, that, you know, nothing can matter, you know, scandals don't hurt candidates anymore. And I, I don't think that's true empirically, you know, that at least it's not always true. So I think we definitely need to wait and see over the next couple of weeks how this might affect Oz and Walker in the polls. Um, my kind of educated guess is that this will hurt them you know, a couple of points, few points, which of course is significant in, in close races, especially when they're already trailing. Um, you know, they even if they were to not be affected at all, right, they need to actually gain um, in order to win those races. So, so my guess is that it might hurt them a little bit, but also probably, you know, maybe it's just for the next few weeks. And then maybe by election day, the news cycle has moved on to something else. Voters kind of come home to, to their party and maybe in the end, it won't uh, impact them too much. But I think there is a lot of uncertainty about it. It's really interesting that uh, what you said about Trump kind of changing the rules. And, and what has been really interesting, I think, is the, um, the way the Republican Party has rallied around Walker. I mean, they had no choice. We talked about it earlier, but it really is kind of fascinating 
the way scandals have evolved really over the past five years. And it, you know, it's just, it's a different kind of politics and we all know that, but it is really fascinating. It's going to be really fascinating to see how these, these particular scandals play out. Yeah. I mean, I think a key point is, you know, I think the comparison, right, is to 2012 and Todd Akin in Missouri, you know, the Republican Party did abandon him. And I don't think that you would see that today. I think that's partially because both parties see these elections as kind of existential. If the other party were to take power, it would be kind of a doomsday scenario for them. But then also for the simple fact for Republicans, Georgia is just too important of a state to give up on, right? If this were, I don't know, well, I guess the Senate is is close regardless, so every state matters. But Georgia is, according to our 538 forecast, the most likely tipping point state. So basically the most likely state to decide control of the Senate right now. And in fact, if you were to assume that Democrats win it, the odds in our forecast for the Senate, which are currently around 67% for Democrats, it would go up to 90% um, conditional on Democrats winning Georgia. So basically, if Republicans want to control the Senate, which of course they do, they have no choice but to uh, dance with the one that brought them. And and part of the problem there is that Republicans are already in trouble in other swing states like Arizona and New Hampshire, where poor candidates have put them in seemingly really bad positions against Democratic incumbents in states they otherwise might have been looking to as alternatives for Georgia, but now they're just stuck with Georgia. So in that vein, a question I asked a while ago on Twitter that I want to get your take on is, of the Republican Senate nominees in these sort of top tier states, and you can sort of define that however you want, there's a lot of pretty bad ones. So I want to see what's your take on who's the worst of the GOP Senate nominees and who is the best? I think the worst candidate is probably Herschel Walker. Um, you have a candidate who not only has no political experience and so just hasn't gotten the reps in on on the campaign trail, but also who clearly has all this baggage. We knew going into the campaign that there were these allegations that he had threatened to kill his his ex-wife. You know, we've learned since this this abortion revelation, we've learned about his um, the three children that he fathered without who he hadn't publicly acknowledged. And quite frankly, given that history and, and his inexperience, who knows what else might be might be lingering out there. In terms of the best Republican candidate, um, I guess it does depend on how you define kind of the top tier races. I think I'd go with Adam Laxalt in Nevada or Ted Budd in North Carolina, if you want to include North Carolina as one of the top tier races. I'm personally skeptical that that one is going to be, I think it'll be close in the end, but it's kind of a situation where like, I think we all kind of know we've seen this this movie in North Carolina before, right? It's going to be a, you know, four point Republican win or something like that. But those are the two candidates who have elected experience. And I think that is so, so crucial, right? Like having gone through an election before, having successfully won office before, you know, getting that, it's not, you, you both get that name recognition and you get those reps on the campaign trail. You maybe get vetted in a way that Herschel Walker is now experiencing and, and kind of failing. You know, that said, I don't think Laxalt or Bud by kind of the standard of a, a, a an actual politician are, are that strong either, right? Ted Budd won his first primary with a, like a vanishingly small percentage of the vote, right? This was like the year that North Carolina didn't have runoffs and he won with like 25% in his first primary, I want to say. And then Adam Laxalt won 
in the attorney generalship of Nevada in 2014, which was a year where Democratic turnout really just completely plummeted. There was basically no Democratic gubernatorial candidate that year. And, and so uh, Republicans across the board just kind of were able to walk into office in 2014. And then, of course, Laxall lost in 2018. I don't necessarily hold that against him because 2018 was such a good Democratic year. But yeah, I, I think probably Laxall, just because he has that, you know, he was a statewide elected official in Nevada. He got four years of statewide name recognition from being attorney general. Um, he doesn't have any major scandals the way that Herschel Walker does. Um, he doesn't have a strange history of uh, odd comments like Blake Masters does or, or Don Bolduck does. Can we switch over to the House? Because I've really been intrigued lately how often I have seen kind of, I call them the prognosticator crowd, um, which is not a slur. I just it's, uh, I'm really interested uh, in what I've seen from um, Nate Cohn, for example, and Dave Wasserman. I and mean, we've seen the Cook Report over the summer telling us that, you know, it, it was just a question of how big the Republican margin was going to be. And now we're seeing them talk in terms of more of a district by district battle, which sounds more like the Senate than the House, right? Nate Cohn this week at the New York Times wrote, if the polls are right and Election Day were today, the fight for the House would be very close. It would be a district by district battle for control. I'm just in, interested in your thoughts on that. And um, we don't see a lot of House district polling. So how, how do we track this? And how, how is it how is it being determined? Yeah, so we at 538 in our House forecast, we currently give Republicans a 69 in 100 chance of winning the House. So they're definitely favored. Um, and I think that makes sense given Democrats' narrow margins and just basically the nearly inevitable tendency for the president's party to lose seats uh, in the House in midterms. But that, that said, you know, I think Many people, as you mentioned, thought that this was a foregone conclusion at the beginning of the cycle, and, and really it has not. And of course, a 69 in 100 chance for Republicans winning means there's a 31 in 100 chance that Democrats will win. And, you know, think about if the, the weather forecast said that there was a 30% chance of rain one day, you'd probably want to grab your umbrella because it's, you know, 30% odd things happen 30% of the time. So yeah, you know, it, I think, you know, it is a district by district battle, ironically, right? Because I think in 2018, we did have a lot of district level polls. And that was really great, because I think the battle that year was seen to be the House. I think going into this year, people assumed that the Senate was going to be the real battle. And of course, it is. But the House has proven to be more competitive than people thought. But kind of pollsters haven't fitted into their budget to, to do a lot of House polls. And so as a result, we really are flying, flying a little more blindly. But that said, in terms of what folks use, you know, I know that you guys at Daily Coast track kind of the, uh, the big four groups. So like the NRCC, the DCCC, um, you know, the, the party groups like that and where they're airing their ad reservations. I think that can be a great indicator of what the parties are seeing, which, you know, you can kind of, it's like, you know, looking like through a fuzzy piece of a pane of glass at something. And then, yeah, like, and there are a lot of internal polls of house districts as well. I think folks like those at, you know, inside elections and Sabados crystal ball and, and cook political report, they're seeing a lot of internal polls that really guide their, their race ratings. I'm jealous of them often because we don't get to see those internal polls and I wish we could, but in the end, you know, for someone like me, like, I am who doesn't have access to these polls. I am looking at generic ballot polling. Like the house has become 
so polarized by party or house voting specifically, right? You look at a graph of house, you know, election margins in 2020 versus presidential election margins. And it's like practically a straight line, right? Like, you know, the correlation is so, so high. And so if you just know what the national popular vote is going to be and kind of the relative partisanship of each district, you can come within a few percentage points of the outcome. Um, there are a few candidates like think of Jared Golden in Maine who kind of consistently overperform the partisanship of their districts and the national environment because they have kind of an independent brand. But most House candidates really don't have that. And they're just kind of seen as a stand in for a generic Democrat. Democrat and a generic Republican, especially in this day and age. And so, you know, I think I'm looking at, at those generic ballot polls. And I think in a situation where Republicans win the popular vote at all, you know, that's a situation where because of Republican gerrymandering, you know, and just the natural geographic disadvantage that Democrats are at, that would be a, a situation where it'd be really hard for Democrats to hold the House um, in the event of a Republican popular vote win. It would be competitive, I think, in a more even environment, a D plus one environment. When you're getting into D plus two, I mean, right now the generic ballot polls are somewhere between a one and two point Democratic lead on average. That's highly competitive uh, to kind of Nate Cohn's point, but also there's still a month to go. Uh, historically, those polls have gotten worse for the president's party uh, the closer you get to election day. So that's kind of a long way of saying that, you know, yeah, we're in an environment where like maybe right now the House is a is a toss up maybe slightly leaning toward democrats but given the movement i think the the 538 forecasts um you know prediction of a slight republican you know republicans are more likely than democrats but it's competitive is kind of the the correct overall assessment in terms of beyond the generic ballot and the partisan lean those are obviously maybe 90 plus percent of of the important aspect of things what are the things that 538 looks at in their model to sort of tweak those races beyond those two big numbers? Yeah, great question. So so obviously individual district polls and, and for the Senate and for governor's races, the individual state polls, when we have those, those are the most important factors in the 538 forecast. But then yes, we, we use a, a sequence of kind of quote unquote fundamental variables. So partisanship is a big one, uh, but also incumbency still matters a little bit the um, kind of moderateness or extremeness of the incumbent candidate as measured by how often they break with their party is is something so all things being equal, candidates closer to the center tend to do better. The strength of the opponent. So we have like a scale kind of going back to our earlier conversation. We have, I think it's a four point scale for assessing the quality of the opponent where like zero is never run for office before. And like four is like, is a, you know, sitting governor running for Senate or something like that, like basically an equivalent kind of move a lateral move and then like you know number one is state like municipal office or something number two is state legislator or something like that um i don't know the exact details so don't quote me on that but yeah that uh fundraising is a big one um we look at how many individual contributions uh or how much money they've raised from individual contributions because that can be obviously it's good to have money in your campaign um to spend money on ads and stuff like that but can also be an indication of your grassroots support we also look at there's actually a variable 
for scandals. If candidates have uh, a scandal associated with them, that dings them a little bit. So lots of things kind of go into the soup. And then uh, the final thing in the deluxe version of our forecast, there are three different versions that people can look at. But the one that is the default that you see if you go to 538.com is this deluxe version. And that also incorporates the race ratings from folks like Cook and Inside Elections and Sabados Crystal Ball, because again, they do sometimes see data that we don't. They also sometimes maybe like somebody like, you know, J.R. Majewski, right? Like they know that, you know, that he went to January 6th and they know that the NRCC has basically abandoned him and the model doesn't quote unquote know that. Um, so, um, you know, in the, especially in the absence of polls, that can really make a difference too. It's really fascinating. And it, it is, it is interesting too, that when you see some of these analyses and, and you kind of address it too, it is qu- candidate quality. And the fact that we're even having a conversation in October of 2022 about the possibility that the Democrats have put the House in play, to me, is a, it's a very exciting place to be. Maybe it doesn't hold out, but it kind of feels like uh, – the way I the, the way I know democratic activists, the fact that that it feels like it could happen really kind of engenders a lot of enthusiasm, and and, and enthusiasm is a big part of what we need going into what our side need going into uh, these elections. So we could definitely talk about specifically the 2022 predictions and our, our estimations all day. But I do want to touch on a couple of other topics while we have you here. One of the things that you recently wrote about was how progressives did during primary season. We just finished, obviously, a month-long primary season where there are a lot of Democratic battles between progressives and more establishment candidates. Also, a lot of Republican battles that got very nasty that we won't get into now. And you found that there was a fairly poor record for progressives against incumbents, though they did have somewhat better success rate in open seat races. So what were sort of the main takeaways from your look at the 2020 primaries? Right. So we took a look at, I think it was six or seven different progressive groups. And it should be noted that, you know, we can't look at every progressive group every year when we do this article we get a note from a different progressive group that we didn't analyze it says what about us and we're sorry we can't include everybody um and as a result of it you know this isn't like a comprehensive analysis right but at some of the big hitters places like our revolution um justice democrats um the progressive change campaign committee etc and we took a look at the candidates they had endorsed and whether they won or not in their primaries and so kind of unsurprisingly we saw that when they tried to take down incumbents they didn't do very well so only one progressive defeated a an incumbent um, this year, and that was Jamie McLeod Skinner in Oregon. And but ten of them, ten of those endorsed candidates lost. And so um, Jessica Cisneros, I think, is a is a prominent example of that. Um, that said, as you mentioned, progressives did have a better win rate in uh, incumbentless primaries, like open seats. So they won fourteen out of twenty five races there, which is fifty six percent, so more than half. That said, that is a step back from twenty twenty when we did the same analysis, and they won sixty seven percent of the open seats that they contested. And, you know, this could just be random variation, could also be, you know, we noted in the article that there was kind of more concerted opposition to progressives in some of these seats, um, particularly from APAC, um, which kind of popped up again and again, spending a lot of money uh, against uh, progressives in states like North Carolina. And so generally, you know, our findings this year were consistent with past years, which is that 
kind of establishment aligned groups. So this year we looked at Joe Biden, who only made three endorsements, but he went two for three. Uh, we looked at at APAC. We looked at the the DCCC's red to blue list. Those candidates tend to win almost all the time, um, but progressives do win, especially in these open seat races, a decent amount of time. And when you think about their goals, you know they're probably they're playing the long game, right? You know every year they're adding a few members to kind of the progressive block in Congress, and over time that will kind of amount to something. So even if in on a you know, race by race basis, they're uh, disappointed almost as often as they are not, or I guess if you include the incumbent ones, they're disappointed more often than, than they're happy. You know, they still have, they've still made some tangible progress since like 2016, 2018, which is kind of when, you know, the modern progressive movement, I would say, um, jumped on the scene. I have one more question too, before we let you go. It feels like over the past few weeks, what it feels like it has happened. We've seen a shift from kind of the polling that looks at registered voters to likely voters. And um, I feel the, Mark Melman, the pollster, wrote a post about this back in 2020. And I feel like it's going to reappear and pop up every year at or every election year at around this time as people are trying to sort out what that means. So what are some of the different ways that pollsters actually create likely voter models? Yeah, it's a great question. So there are a few different techniques. Um, some pollsters will just ask people, are you going to vote? Other pollsters will ask people a series of questions kind of to get at their political engagement and use those the answers to those questions to kind of build their own model for likelihood to vote. Other pollsters will literally just look at the voter file and see, did this person vote in three of the last four elections or something like that? Basically based on the theory that if people have been habitually a strong voter, then they are. But if they didn't vote in the 2018 midterms, maybe they won't vote in 2022, or maybe they didn't vote in both 2014 and 2018 if they're you know old enough so yeah so the, the, uh, there are a variety of techniques they might mix and match with these as well also some you know like there's a, also kind of a difference between sometimes like a pollster will like try to assess on an individual level right is this person likely to vote and if the answer is yes they will count them in their likely voter sample and if the answer is no they won't count them other pollsters kind of do it more probabilistically. So they say, this person we think has an 80% chance of voting. And so we'll give them 80%, like, you know, they'll be worth 80% of a person, of a respondent in our poll and kind of aggregate up from there. So there are a lot of different methods that pollsters use. And, you know, nobody has the secret sauce. Obviously, if, if they did, then that, that everybody would just use that. Pollsters have been doing this, obviously, for a long time. Some of these really um, well-regarded pollsters like a uh, Monmouth or Quinnipiac or a uh, um, Siena College, they are experts at this. I think they they do a pretty good job overall. So obviously we've been using likely voter models for a long time. Has there ever been any research or do you know of any research if, if they're actually better than registered voter models? I presume that they are just because everyone always uses them, but I don't know. I assume that someone studied this at some point. I just don't know. Yeah, they're they're definitely better than registered voter polls. Like it's always difficult, obviously, to project exactly who's going to turn out. And I think especially in 2022, right, you might assume that be, Republicans would be very enthusiastic to turn out to vote and Democrats might not be. But the Dobbs decision maybe turned that on its head. And we've seen a lot of kind of anecdotal stories about women and young people registering in big numbers. And it's like, are these people going to turn out? Like, you know, they seem enthused, but like we've been burned before by assuming that young people are going to turn out in big numbers. It's certainly tricky, but on the the flip side, the alternative looking at registered voters, like we know for a fact that not all registered voters are going to vote. We know that 
disproportionately certain types of voters, young people, people of color, do not vote at as high rates as other groups of voters, like older people, white people, college educated people. So like if you're just looking at registered voters, you are going to get and you know a kind of proposed electorate that is not going to exactly match what is the people who are actually going to go to the polls and like i don't know whether the you know what the correct percentage of college educated people versus latinos versus young people women versus men is going to be in in november but i think that a likely voter model especially by a pollster who you know has lots of practice doing this is going to get you closer to the correct answer than just looking at registered voters and probably as close as possible and of course this is where i put the obligatory 538 line that you know polls are not going to be 100% accurate you just can't expect that out of them they are going to have this margin of error they get pretty close but they're not going to be precise so be just be prepared for that Absolutely. So hopefully most of our listeners are already well aware of this, but where can folks find you? I write for 538. So you can just go to 538.com. We are writing a lot of things uh, these days. And then you can also follow me on Twitter at BaseBallot, which is the name of my old blog. Great. Well, thanks for joining us. We've been talking with Nathaniel Rakich, the Senior Elections Analyst for 538. Thanks for having me, guys. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Nathaniel Rikic for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Kara Zelaya, and editor, Tim Einenkel. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Everything is on the line this election. Abortion, climate change, even our democracy. But this election will come down to voter turnout. And if we can do our part to get out the Democratic vote in key races. November 8th will be here before we know it. And people are already voting early. What are you doing to help get out the vote? I'm Paul Hogarth from the Daily Coast Activism Team. I help run our Get Out the Vote activities, recruiting thousands of volunteers into effective action that can get Democrats out to the polls. As of October 1st, more than 40,000 of you have already volunteered, but we need more if we are going to win. We have made a comprehensive list of ways you can get involved to change the outcome of the 2022 election. Whether it's walking precincts, making phone calls, writing texts, sending letters and postcards, or even driving voters to the polls, we have an activity for you, and we need you today. Go to dailycoast.com GOTV, as in get out the vote, that's dailycoast.com slash GOTV and scroll down to find the best campaign and the best activity for you. Don't wake up on November 9th feeling you could have done more. Join us today at dailycoast.com slash GOTV as in get out the vote.